Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Good morning. Welcome to post-election Sunday. (laughs) Here at Sydney Writers' Festival. What a delight it is to be here with you all and to be sharing the stage with Delia Faulkner and later as she comes to the video, Indira Naidu. We are, of course, on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and I pay my respects to elders past and present and extend my greetings to First Nations people here today. Let me introduce myself. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, isn't that Julia Baird? (laughs) In the interest of transparency, and of course, we just had an election and I would like full transparency, I need to tell you, no, it is not. My name is Suzanne Leal. I'm the author of novels, The Teacher's Secret and The Deceptions, and I'll have a new novel out next year. I'm a board member of the Sydney Crime Writers Festival and host of Thursday Book Club, a relaxed and friendly book club connecting readers online. But now, of course, to my my guests. Delia Faulkner is right here beside me, and she is the much-lauded author of the personal history book, Sydney, and the novels, The Service of Clouds and The Lost Thoughts of Soldiers. She's also the winner of the Walkley Pascal Award for Arts Criticism. Her new book, a collection of essays, is Signs and Wonders, dispatched from a time of beauty and loss, which you can hear right here. See right here. Welcome to you, Delia. Thank you. Indira Naidu is well known to all of us as a journalist and broadcaster, including on the ABC TV's 7.30 and SBS World News. She currently hosts ABC Radio Weekend's Nightlife Show, and her first book, Edible Balcony, was a bestseller. Her new book, which you'll see here, is The Space Between the Stars, and it's a memoir about grief, healing, and nature. Welcome to you, Indira. Hello, Suzanne, and hello, Delia. For today, this post-election Sunday, I have a general question for you both, first to Delia, then to Indira. What, Delia Faulkner, gives you hope? (laughs) Well, um, after last night's election result, I feel sort of more hopeful than I felt for a a very, very long time. Even physically, I think I've just, I I don't know about other people, but I think I've been walking around with a clenched jaw and, you know, clenched hands and just that feeling of um, waking up this morning and feeling like we were hopefully looking at a fairer Australia, Australia that recognises the Uluru Statement from the Heart, that um, recognises regional responsibility um, is, um, and hopefully, um, you know, we've had the climate election. Um, you know, I, there's a lot of work to do, but I feel hopeful for the first time in, a, in quite some time. Indira, you're coming to us from New York. What gives you hope? Uh, I have to admit, just getting into New York was an act of hope uh, <laughs> because, you know, th- there's a, a whole lot of logistics to get through uh, still with international travel. So trying to stay COVID negative and to get here, we had 15 friends gathering with us here in New York to celebrate my husband's 70th birthday, which is itself a, an extraordinary achievement, so a very hopeful thing. And, you know, to see New York, which was devastated by the pandemic and COVID, and particularly in those early months, seeing it slowly come out, the people come back out on the streets, everyone going back onto Broadway, onto the streets, there's been so much hope around. The weather is lifting, it's spring, the tulip boxes are are all in bloom along the streets. And of course, with that election result last night, it's a time of change. And for me, change means hope. People embrace that change when they're hopeful, Uh, as a time when we embrace, again, what we'll be talking about today, this important connection that we have in nature. You know, there's so much healing that needs to uh, happen. Our relationship with nature, nature's relationship with us, our our relationship with each other. I know that we've we've felt very disconnected from each other through the isolation of the pandemic. I want to see uh, hope embracing each other in in stronger community and stronger togetherness. So, yes, like Delia, I'm feeling overwhelmed with hope. What a lovely way to start. Thank you, Indira. Thank you, Delia. Delia, Signs and Wonders is a collection of essays, very thoughtful, personal, and deeply researched. Is there a thread that weaves these essays together? Um, The thread that weaves them together is is beauty and loss. So 
uh, you know, we're living in a period of um, of great uh, um, um, unraveling of the climate and the world as we knew it, where things that uh, that we love the most deeply and the most profoundly are on the brink or, or in the process of perhaps becoming un unrecognisable, and so um, it's uh, it's an almost un it's almost unthinkable. Some of the um, you know we, we might talk about this later, but some of the challenges that are. Um, that are ahead for the environment and the ways in which it's it's changing. And I wanted to um, take the time in this book to kind of sit with the sit with the unthinkable and to sit with um, sit at this point of beauty and and sometimes terror and just um, look at it from the biggest point from what philosophers and scientists um, and writers and, and, and filmmakers are, are um, thinking about thinking and writing about it and processing it and also then take it down to the smallest level to um, you know to uh, a seal that you know what happens when a 200 pound um, 200 kilo seal uh, first seal turns up in the, in your local park you know is that a you know is that a good thing or a bad thing um, and to look at um, to record all those tiny details um, of some of the things we've been through too like like COVID and um, and like the our first mega fires in Australia 2019 to 20 fires, um, I've tried to oscillate continually between the, the beauty and the loss. Mm. Um, yeah, so that, that's, the, that's the, the kind of axis for all the different essays that try to come at this at personal, um, but also um, uh, sort of, I suppose, sort of philosophical and scientific angles, keep mm -hmm. trying to, to sort of move the lens around this moment and sit with it quietly. Sit with it. I think that word or that phrase, sit with it, Indira, is something that actually is relevant to your book. And my question for you is, why did you what, 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 write this new book, The Space Between the Stars? What prompted the writing of it? Well, the, the writing of it really was a way to make sense of a, a terrible horror that happened in my life when my younger sister took her life during Melbourne's first lockdown. And even though... I had been connected to nature, uh, you know, I've been a, a very passionate gardener in the last uh, couple of decades as well, and I understood that you can get a lot of healing and comfort from being within nature. I guess the challenge I wanted to throw out for myself was could immersing myself in nature, reconnecting really, really deeply with nature, help me heal from this extremely uh, grievous loss that I, I, I have to admit when I started, I didn't think it was possible. And I think um, that comes out very beautifully in your book. And I'll leave that for a moment and have you read for us in a moment as well. Delia, I'd like to start with you though. Um, you, of course, are known as one of our most beautiful writers. Um, you have the ability to encompass complex thoughts in a way that is lyrical and accessible. And what I'd like is if you could read us the opening of your book. A few years ago, I found a bird's nest on the footpath, a beautiful thing of loosely woven she-oak needles lined with pale grey fur. I held it cupped in my hand as I continued onto the train from our inner city suburb and walked through the long pedestrian tunnel to the edge of Sydney's central business district. The joyful attention it attracted surprised me. That's a little noisy miner's nest you've got there, a woman told me as she passed. Lovely, another called out. But when I reached the university and showed it to my student, a man my own age, his face fell. This meant a bird had lost its home, he said. Did I know, he asked, that when the harbour bridge was first built, crows made their nests on its high trusses? But when they went out to search for food, the architecture was so repetitive that even these clever birds couldn't find their way back to their chicks. I smiled a little to myself at my students' tragic cast of mind. Recent high winds had blown down this nest, a small drama innocent as far as I knew of any human interference. Yet I was all too familiar myself with a sense of wonder that flipped over quickly into apprehension about our impact on the natural world. Were the still evenings of a gloriously prolonged summer reason to rejoice or evidence of disrupted climate patterns? Was a great good fortune while driving in a remote part of the country to have seen a koala bundling along by the roadside with her joey on her back or an indicator of distress? Over the last few years, these trains of thought have multiplied. Is what I am witnessing normal or abnormal, a good or a bad sign? 
And above all, is it due somehow to us? I don't know about you, but I really love being read to. And um, more and more, because um, I'm a bit busy, um, I listen, as well as reading, I listen, and I listen to a lot of audiobooks. And um, Delia has been accompanying me everywhere <laughs> over the last week. She's been accompanying me on a run, um, washing, <laughs> cleaning up, taking the kids places. Um, because, of course, nearly, uh, Delia narrates her book as well as having written it. And there is something beautiful about having the author narrate his or her or their own, own book. So thank you for that. Indira, I've um, not grown up, but growing, I've, I've grown into myself having you as the backdrop of our news and our current affairs. And um, this is my husband, who was very impressed <laughs> that we would be on stage here together, at least virtually. And uh, what I'd like to ask you is to do the same thing as Delia has, which is to read the opening of this very beautiful lyrical book. Yes, I just want to say that what a beautiful passage that was, Delia. I, I just absolutely adore birds' nests, don't they? They just capture the beauty of nature. All right, so this is the prologue to my book. It's called In the Beginning. This is a story of love and loss and the joy that can be found just around the corner. For as long as I can remember, there has always been just the three of us, me, Dreamcatcher and Stargirl, three sisters only a year between each, Three peas in a pod, inseparable. That's what everybody says. It's been like this for almost 50 years. I'm the eldest, the leader of the pack, bossy and extroverted. Dreamcatcher is the middle one, fiercely loyal, the conciliator, kind and gentle. Stargirl is the youngest, the dark outlier, the brilliant non-conformist. We are so tight, even our parents can't break the bonds. For most of the action, they sit in the audience. The regular upheavals in our trans-global childhood knit us even tighter. Another school, another city, another country, it matters not. We are all we need until now. On a chilly autumn's night, Stargirl walked out into her suburban backyard and took her life. There was no note, no explanation. How had it come to this? She was a mother and a wife, a Walkley Award-winning journalist with a master's degree, a media advisor to state premiers. What had compelled her to end a life I imagine others would give their life to live? The dream capture in me, the stars went dark that night. Is it possible to ever heal a tear in your universe? Can three now become two? The pages that followed chart my search to find the light again in the dark places and how a wise old tree helped me put myself back together. Thank you, Andira. <laughs> Tell me a bit about this wise old tree. Wow, what a tree. I'm sure because Delia lives in a similar part of, of what's Point Elizabeth Bay to me. She may have come across this in her walks. I stumbled across it in the midst of this overwhelming grief, I was completely numb. I was in shock. I had walked this path through the gardens as part of my ISO walk during the lockdown many, many times. But this particular morning, for some reason I'm not sure, I stopped under a tree and I sat down. And I suddenly realised all the branches above me belonged to this one towering Morton Bay fig. It was magnificent. It had such a huge canopy. It had these beautiful roots so that were like dinosaur claws that went all the way down the hillside towards Woolloomooloo Bay. And I felt such a sense of calm, of solace immediately. Uh, and it was like this green radiance had uh, dropped over me. And I realised that sitting under that tree, I was back at my ancestral home. Trees were our first home. That's where we sought refuge first. As kids, we climbed trees and we felt safe and we could watch uh, our kingdom below us. And I realised under this tree, I could just be. And one of the things that you struggle with in very deep grief is not being able to find a vocabulary to explain your feelings to anyone. People feel, you know, uh, challenged to know what to say to you in your grief. The great thing about a tree is you don't have to say anything. It doesn't talk back at you. 
you can just be in its presence and it can comfort you just by being that. And that was how this powerful relationship developed between me and the tree, uh, Suzanne and Delia. And I did some research and I talked to different people at the Botanic Gardens and found out it had seen so much death and grief and life. And where it sat on those, at the hill of Woolloomooloo Bay overlooked the wharves of Woolloomooloo, where it used to be the main wharves where all the men and women would go off you know, to the war front and some would return, others not. It had seen all that grief, all the loved ones saying goodbye something, and the, the people who had lost. It had healed other people like me. And that sense of continuity that I was part of a bigger thing than just me and my loss started to help my healing. And this tree, day by day, showed me through all the other bits of nature that happened in the tree's vicinity, birds and bird nests and feathers and the weeds in the cracks and the little ants showed me that I was part of something much bigger and that life and death and continuity and healing and hope was just part of being human. And I wasn't separate from nature. I was part of it. And this all happened under my tree. Delia, you love trees and you have loved very much a tree under which or through which you wrote. Tell me about this tree. Oh, well, look, it's, a, it was, it's been a delight to, to listen to Indira and to read her book because I do know this landscape very well and I know that tree particularly well and I have walked, um, you know, sort of nurturing my own griefs, um, uh, you know, down in the um, in Rushcutters Bay Park mostly, but Woolloomooloo Bay and my book also starts in Woolloomooloo Bay. Um, so, um, look, I have, um, I, it went in our old apartment, we have actually moved out of the area now, but we used to look out at um, two gum trees um, that, uh, you know, were an accompaniment to me um, through, my, through my writing in my office. And, um, uh, they threw um, this beautiful description of a poem, fish and, um, like um, fishermen's nets of shadow um, onto, the, onto the wall. And they were part of my, uh, you know, my familiar workspace. And um, then one day they had to be chopped down because we were on one of those mad Sydney blocks where the backyard wasn't our own backyard. It was the top of the next door garage and their roots were, you know, apparently kind of going into the into the garage, and so there was nothing we could do about it. Um, but I've sort of thought I used those trees to kind of think through the fact that, um, you know, we do find, you know, we, we, we probably also as humans actually escaped the, um, you know, the, the comet that, that hit Earth, earth um, when we were tiny little shrew-like creatures in, in trees as well. So, you know, we have an enormously long sort of relationship with them. But, you know, those natural things from which we have been um, getting those feelings of nurturing and continuity for a very long time, they're not all right. And um, so that's, that's, you know, what I want to address in, again, every essay in this book, that, um, you know, we are in what's called the, the Great Acceleration. Um, we're in a moment where all our effects on the Earth, CO2, ocean acidification, all the good things are all sort of, you know, um, just going up exponentially. And we're getting to a point of tipping points where... Things are becoming predictably unpredictable. We are, we are just on the. We, you can see from the megafires and from the, um, you know, from the from the floods recently that nature is out of whack now, and that's the thing that we really have to have to juggle with. And what I'm trying to think through in my book is this sense that um, we are. Um, Things, we are on the edge of a climate chaos and this is what it feels like now. And so, um, you know, I want to, want to sort of look constantly with that dual lens, as I did with those, those two trees, at the fact of the potential loss and the beauty that we have at the moment and that sort of this, this profound moment that we are, we are sitting at. Um, but those, all those things that, you know, give our, ourselves, our human deeper stories about seasonality, about, about um, you know, the, the predictable weather, the predictable in Sydney, you know, um, again, where, where we live um, or lived, in my case, in Deer, you know, those southerly winds, knowing, those, that knowing mm -hmm. the air is going to be humid, all those things that make attack just most deeply to place are going out of whack. And that is the, you know, that is the, the sort of the challenge to face. And so that, that those two trees in that essay become a, a you know, a, a way of thinking through that the beauty of attachment, um, but also the, the, the terror of loss. 
I was thinking about the combination of these two books and I came up with a sentence to describe how these books unite. It would be this sentence, I think. Nature heals us. How can we heal nature? Do you think that's the intersection point of your books? Indira, tell me a bit about healing and nature. Well, what I've discovered, Suzanne, in, in my deep connection with nature, and particularly urban nature, because I think that this was an important awareness for me, is that we look at nature as somewhere else. Uh, if you need some time out or to relax, we go away to the beach or to the mm. mountains or to the hills or, or an ashram. Of course, in lockdown, we didn't have that choice. I had my five kilometres around me. I had my urban nature, which... I thought wasn't a lot, but of course I'm very fortunate. I'm on uh, the banks of, of the opera of the uh, Harbour, um, Sydney Harbour, and the Botanic Gardens. So I have a really big piece of, of nature around me. So I'm pretty spoiled. But what happened was I had to go into the micro and focus on all those little bits that we ignore, we trample every day because we're distracted by our phones, the cracks and the little weeds that are surviving and surviving much better than I was surviving in my grief. It had hardly anything. It hardly had rain. It hardly had any nourishment and nutrients. And there I was thinking I didn't have enough to survive. And here was a little weed showing me how little you actually need if you live in harmony with your surroundings. Birds that I you know, saw and, and walked past, again, were an indication of the change and the beauty. If you look at a feather the way we did as children, the way that they're created, and my tree, what it, what it showed me is that the challenge we have, the eco-grief we're going through at the moment, I think is largely because we have lost this, this connection. How do we reconnect? Because unless you love, you will not save. So we need to help us re-engage with the love of nature, and, and that is how the saving will follow. And my tree showed me that I'm not bigger, humans are not bigger and better than trees than nature in a way that we have now started to see ourselves. We are part of nature. In fact, a tree has showed me that it, it, is, it is more amazing than a human being. It stays in place. All those storms that we've gone through, the floods, I could have run away, I could hide, I could dash to the supermarket for toilet paper. My tree had to stay there and fight the elements on its own. It had to shelter itself. It had to draw on all the resources and nutrients it needed with its root. All these birds, all these insects, all the creatures that live in the soil, all the worms, and sheltered people like me. Now, what an extraordinary creature that tree is. And it's there showing us every day, these trees, what it can do for us and how much healing it's there. It was there to heal us. Trees, uh, you know, I was, I was saying recently that if trees gave us all the free Wi-Fi we needed, we would plant more trees. We would adore and we would love trees. But all the tree does is give us free oxygen. Hey, we don't need that. I mean, it's pretty crazy. It's sitting there giving us something that nothing else on this planet can give us, free oxygen. And what do we do? We destroy them. We cut them down. We destroy their habitat. I mean, the disconnection is so extraordinary at the moment. I think what you're talking about is the term you use, eco-spirituality. And I'd like to just quickly quote from you, Indira, and then um, ask you, Delia, about your thoughts. So this is what you write, Indira. What I'm also getting from my journey into eco-spirituality is a deeper sense that we, are, as humans, are only a small part of the living world. There are bees and worms and urban foxes. I'm only one of millions of creatures trying to find a home on this planet. The more you think about that, the less it becomes about you. It has changed my ideas of community, about ownership of land, of my place in the universe. From rights and needs, it has become about responsibilities. Delia, does this resonate with you? Yes, of course. Um, you know, I think a lot of us in lockdown really, um, you know, those of us who had access to parks and, um, and the outdoors, it was extraordinary how... Um, how how rich um, we how how rich those worlds could be. So there was a, there were a lot of articles on people bird watching or, um, you know, I, I write in my book about um, you know just walking um, that loop to um, Mackell Park and back, which is my my favourite walk in the neighbourhood. And again, um, that profound um, that profound um, connection with with nature. But you know we're at a I think again at a at a point where um, for me, that's a very um, 
I, I, you know, yes, we are, we are starting to understand in very profound ways that, you know, the fiction that nature was over there and we were here is, is that. It's a fiction. It's probably the, might be the fiction that <laughs> sort of, you know, fin finishes all, us all off if we don't start to rapidly sort of recognise the fact that, um, that we're, con we're connected. But I'm a little bit, um, I'm a little bit cautious about, about wonder. Um, I'm a little bit cautious about looking at nature and um, sort of feeling better because I think that um, I'm constantly aware um, of the fact that perhaps it's trying to, perhaps it's trying to tell us um, some really profound things about, um, you know, what dire straits we're in. Um, and so, you know, at the same time as, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's, it's a bit, it, um, we're in a period that's moving very quickly and one can look at one's phone and see, a, um, you know, see animals, you know, sort of deer running around the edges of a, um, a Scottish village or uh, sea slugs that look like David Bowie. You know, we can see all these marvellous things. And then um, at the same time, um, you know, there are really profound things going on, like the, the, the Gulf Stream is actually moving off course. You know, there are um, extraordinary, you know, extraordinary things that are um, almost... Un, again, almost as if they come out of fairy tale, almost unthinkable. So mammoths appearing out of the permafrost, um, uh, you know, glace, uh, uh, holes in the methane in the permafrost blowing like bottles of champagne, and it's awe-inducing, and it's it's amazing, and it's profound, but it's also, um, you know, really frightening. And I think again, I want to when I when I sort of look at the um, you know, look at the uh, frogs that are, um, you know, have miraculously appeared in my inner west um, neighbourhood or look at the native bees that are in my garden. I'm, it's a, dual, it's a weird sort of dual consciousness I think one has at the moment of wonder, but of this profound sense of, um, of things being out of whack and a profound sense of, of sort of eco-grief as well. And I think we really need to to sit with that as much as the wonder, because some of those wonders are actually also trying to, you know, trying to, to tell us to, um, you know, are, are also perhaps profound signs of, of ecological loss. And, and, you know, we sometimes don't know. Um, we don't know if we see an echidna that's, um, you know, my mum's old neighbourhood, I hadn't seen an echidna for, you know, since I was a kid, since I was about seven. And now they seem to be everywhere on the grass verges. But again, um, there's that, profoundly discomforting feeling of looking at them and thinking, oh, you know, are they here because we're looking after the environment really well and they're, they're you know, and, and we're um, taking less of a toll on their place in the um, national park that's next door? Or have they kind of been driven out by, by something again that we, we have done? Is it, are the, is it all the fires, the mega fires that have sort of driven them out of their territory? It means they're sort of appearing in human territory. Um, you know, it's a very... Um, I wanted to sit with the amb ambiguity of that as well. So, yeah. Thank you. Indira, you've been nodding. Um, what um, are these thoughts that resonate with you um, about our future and, and where we are? Yes. I, I, everything that Delia said, I, I, I struggle with as well when I immerse myself very deeply in my urban natural world and I feel the closeness of, of the creatures with me, but... I start to see how we're changing their behaviour and, and changing their growth and, and what, what, what they eat and, and their breeding cycles. I, I, I'm more aware of it now because I'm allowing myself to be quiet and, and still and present with nature. And it is very disconcerting, uh, disconcerting about uh, what, what they're, they're becoming. Um, so even though I will spend time watching birds on my balcony or, or ants collecting, uh, you know, different substances. I know that it's not their natural way to be doing a lot of that and their behaviour has, has changed quite dramatically and, and it is heartbreaking to actually watch it, even though they are creatures and they are close to us and, and that connection is really lovely. One of the ways that my healing was helped by watching those cycles as well was, you know, one of the things when you lose someone is that you automatically think 
I, I needed more time. I didn't have enough time, you know. And when I spent time, I, I enlisted all these nature guides to share their wonderful parts of urban life with me, whether it was weeds in the cracks or birds or feathers. And I spent some time with an entomologist and, and just lay on the grass as I did as a child, just watching ants running around when they were heated up by the sun and crawling out of their little holes and seeing what they collected, the amazing distances they travelled for little creatures and the feats uh, that they achieved. And those ants that I watched lived for six, seven days, which isn't a long time, actually. And they do so much for us as humans and help with the decomposition cycle in our natural world. And there I was feeling this terrible loss of my sister who had been with me for 48 years and I was feeling robbed and that I didn't have enough time. And so watching these ants meet what they could do in their time and how they lived with, with a purpose, you know, they, you know, if you've ever watched ants, they are like terrors. They just run all the time and they're, they're constantly working and I'm sure a lot of it is formic acid they're filled with. But it, again, helped with my healing that placed my context. I had all this time. What did I do with it? What did I do, not only in my relationship to my sister, did I use it enough, but my time on earth so so far, you know? I've got so much time. How much have I fiddled, you know, whittled away? How much more opportunity there is to do something more productive? And six to seven days, look at what an ant can achieve. What did I do with my last six or seven days? So it also changed the nature of time for me and that, yes, nature and has this cycle and, you know, exploring the stars that I did one night with an astronomer, there is a cosmic cycle as well that is so much bigger and longer than us. But there are these small cycles that we can do so much more in that we think, oh, it's not enough time, you know. But every hour, every day is a lot of time if you harness it, if we all direct our energy towards using that time more effectively. I don't necessarily think that things are too late you know, in, in lots of ways. There are ways to look at every hour and every day with um, a lot more, uh, you know, chances for us to do the change we need to do. Thank you, Indira. Delia, Indira's talked about loss and nature and watching. There are many beautiful passages in both of your books, but one that I've chosen of yours talks about you and birds, and I'm wondering if you might read that for me. Yeah, so um, my um, my mum passed away um, uh, uh, the year before last and um, she and I always used to um, feed the birds in her house and, and, and she, she was there for 47 years. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the great challenges of this time is it does, um, we do, is, is we do have to think about time and we have to think about our own time and deep time um, um, at the same time. Um, so this is the beginning of my essay, Birds. When I experienced a great loss in my early 40s, almost a year to the day after another, I went to see my mother in the family home. She wasn't a hugger or giver of advice, so instead we fed the birds. As she had when I was a child, she stood behind me in the kitchen with her shoulder propped against the back door, passing slices of apple and small balls of minced meat into my hand. Each bird, apart from the snatching kookaburras, was touchingly gentle in the way it took food from my fingers. The white cockatoos ate daintily, one-legged. The lorikeets jumped onto the sloping ramp on both feet like eager parachutists to quarrel over the apple and press the juice from the pulp with stubby tongues. Lined up on the veranda rail, the magpies cocked their heads to observe me before accepting meat precisely in their blue-white beaks. They had a beautiful caroling song with a corded quality in the falling registers. But the bright-eyed butcher birds had the most lovely song of all, a full-throated piping, which I've heard compared to the Queen of the Night's aria in Mozart's Magic Flute. Over decades, a family of these little blue-gray birds had come to stack their hooked meat-eaters' beaks with mints, which they flew to deliver to young somewhere in our neighbor's garden, though we had never bothered to try to work out where they lived. This afternoon, when my mother and I opened the door, they landed by our side, as they always had, having spotted us from their watching places. For a brief moment, surrounded by these vital creatures, I felt as if I might still want to be alive. Thank you. Mm. Beautiful. From, from that excerpt, it made me think about 
writing very personal accounts. I write fiction, which is a little bit of an escape, really, because you get to hide behind imaginary people, even if it's very much about you, perhaps, at times. You've both wrote, written very personal accounts of very personal things. And my question to you is, as publication date approached, does the personal nature of your writing make you nervous or apprehensive about having a personal account out in the world? I'll start with you, Indira. Funnily enough, Susanna, I wasn't really that concerned about the personal nature of, of what I was sharing in my book. Uh, but I was very mindful of the effect it would have on, on my readers because there, there is a lot of trauma, there is a lot of um, emotion I share, events I share that could be triggering for other people who have gone through uh, similar losses or sudden deaths or, or struggle with their mental health. So that was what I was more concerned about, that they would find comfort and solace and, and nourishment from my words uh, and, and it, would, it would be a positive experience for them to go to because it is an area that very few people tackle uh, in this way, to, to write so openly a, a, about a suicide in a family like this. And a number of people around me, most of my close friends and, and family, my grief counsellor, uh, that was a really important part of my healing, were concerned about what effect it would have for it to be in the public domain. Mm. And for me, the process of writing the book was such a healing one. We hear about journaling as a a very positive way to get perspective on your feelings and, and your grief and see the words and further in writing a book uh, was, I thought, going to be an, an even more profound way to do that. But, of course, writing a book in itself is a grief process uh, for a lot of authors. So to go through a bit of a double grief and what happened to me is I split myself into, I realised, that the writer separated from uh, the, you know, the traumatised sister and... The writer was the one that led the sister through the path of healing and, you know, really made her look at her feelings, look at the effect that the natural world was, was having on her. And unfortunately, since my book's been out there, I am finding that, that a number of readers are sharing with me that sharing my story has helped them with, with their grief and that I've, I've found words and, and you know, because people feel so alone in their grief. And hearing someone else's story, reading someone's story has been so comforting for a lot of people. So I am so glad from that point of view that I did manage to, to write this book and, and it is out there. Thank you. Delia, did you become apprehensive as the publication date approached or you are a personal writer? Were you used to that? Oh, look, I am I'm the least willing autobiographical subject. I have never <laughs> felt, you know, here I am, here I have, have you know, sort of things to say. Um, um, I always have, I love writing fiction um, and I love, um, you know, I love that, that, that dressing up aspect of it um, and the freedom of it. Uh, you know, strangely enough, I've written two autobiographical <laughs> Um, books, you know, about my hometown, about Sydney, which is again sort of set in in the same sort of territory um, as Indira's book and um, and and this book. And I, I think, you know, my rationale was that I think it's all too easy to feel absolutely hammered by these these sort of facts, hammered by, um, you know, the the. Um, the new, the all the the news of insect apocalypses, and you know where are the bogong moths, and uh, you know to to be very aware of um, you know sort of plastics in the ocean, and and you know whales turning up with you know greenhouses in their stomachs, and so on, 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 on it goes. Uh, but it can feel like it's sort of over there, and I think that you know I thought well the job for me just 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 to write this book is to um, to feel it personally, but also. Um, to use my life as a kind of a, a measure, which I think, you know, creative non-fiction, non-fiction writing often, often does. And I realised that, you know, I was born in, in 1966 and, you know, the great acceleration that we're living through, um, you know, is about, um, you know, starts around about 1950. And so I realised my life spanned, um, you know, took the same sort of span. And I thought, well, you know, there's one, there's one measure. Um, and so I'm going to... Um, you know, think about my own space, but but as, as and centre that on on myself, my own life, because you know we, it's it's 
so easy for that all to just sort of slip past and seem too sort of enormous. Where I struggled actually was, um, you know, in writing about my children. You know, my I wouldn't do it now. I fi kind of figure that, you know, when they were, they, that, you know, they're 10 now. And, um, but, you know, I do write about, um, you know, I, I wanted them in the book because, the pe you know, that the, they are looking at a future of, um, you know, sort of, you know, where, where things are really going, you know, potentially going to be going out of whack in like 2030, you know, all the things that were supposed to be happening at the end of this, this century, um, you know, major extinctions and so on, uh, or, you know, unlivable heat are all sort of really, you know, sort of coming down the, down the line to then I thought, well, they, they, you know, I want their presence there in this book as a, as a kind of a, um, you know, as, as again, an sort of the, the inescapability of, um, um, of that generation um, and and their good sense and hope as well, and the profundity that that, that small children can can have about these these sort of issues. Um, but yeah, I did I did struggle a little bit with um, with putting them putting them in the book. Um, but you know, it, it's it's. Um, you know, it was important to me to write about, you know, going to Parliament House with them and, you know, looking for Sean the Prawn, um, carboniferous fossil in the floor of, of Parliament House and spinning that out to thinking about um, uh, politicians making profound decisions about the carbon cycle, you know, sort of down, down the corridor. I think we have to try and reduce, you know, or bring these things back to a, to a small scale um, because other, you know, to, and to bring, it, to bring it that close to try and do, you know, to, to do something about it. And as Indira says, you know, you, you need to feel that love and that connection um, to nature and to generations as well, I think, in order to want to, um, want to try and act and, and, and preserve things. Indira, Delia's children, her twins, pepper her book. And you are a very young grandmother to Abby. <laughs> and Abby is a joyful, dancing, magical presence in the book. And I'm hoping just before we, we close for questions that you would um, read us a quote in which we, um, we talk about puddles. Mm. Yes, you're so right, Suzanne. Children are just such a, a wonderful reconnection, a conduit back into nature. And I think if we can reconnect to the inner child that we all still have inside of us, it's such a, a powerful way uh, to heal, to get over grief, to reconnect to the joy. And one of the things that I did was, was kite flying, which I hadn't done since I was 10 years old. And wow, that was so wonderful because it takes you out of yourself and I think that's an important part to go through when you're grieving is that you can get stuck in your head and when you go through these activities like just watching a, a kite in the sky uh, you you know you're pulled into a different uh, periphery a different perspective and that's where the joy flows and I'll read you a, a chapter about what I rediscovered about puddles Despite our parents' warnings, water had a magnetic pull in all its forms. Puddle. I just love saying that word. Puddle. Puddles may have looked innocent, but to our parents, they were a silent menace. They were filthy and muddy and could swallow up little children who would never be clean again, ever. And then we became those parents. I hadn't thought about puddles for ages until my regular hikes to my fig tree began to give the ground beneath my feet new significance. Why had I forgotten how captivating the world down there could be? Feathers, weeds, and now puddles were where infinite joy could be found. Our granddaughter, Abby, may have some insights. When I was researching the various experts I could chat to about puddles, and yes, puddles, are an actual area of academic study. I realised no one could know more about puddles than an eight-year-old girl. It's a sunny winter's day as Abby and I head to the Royal Botanic Garden, hoping to find some puddles left from yesterday's rain. We have to walk all the way to Mrs Macquarie's point before we finally spot some shimmering along the footpath near the slipway, even though the soaring sails of the Sydney Opera House are mere metres away, our eyes are glued only to the ground, investigating the number and depth of puddles at our disposal. Abby gives a yelp of delight when she sees one near the sloshing harbour shoreline. 
she's certain we should try this one first. I asked ask her how she decides what makes a good puddle. Well, Dee Dee, it has to be a bit deep so it gives a good splash but not too deep so it gets into your boots. Makes perfect sense to me. She motions to me and to stand next to her, grabs my hand and counts to three. One, two, three. And with that, we leap into the air, landing little clumsily, mostly me, in the puddle, sending a spray of water in several arcs around us. We watch as each airborne droplet falls back to earth as liquid sunshine. We giggle and gasp, trying to catch our breath. That was a good splash, Dee Dee, says Abby, looking very satisfied as she struts off to find the next puddle to conquer. I can't move, overwhelmed by the emotion of this simple experience. In this perfect moment, under this soaring sky, I want to prescribe puddle jumping and Abby's infectious company to anyone with a broken heart. Take a teaspoon of this every day before a meal. Thank you, Indira. Now, the way questions are going to work is that there's a standing mic, so if you could come to either either side of the stage and a volunteer will help you to, um, to approach the microphone. While we're just waiting for people to come to the stage, I just had one quick question for Indira. Um, I'm not sure that the audience know that you're actually a Scottish dancer. <laughs> a hopeless one, unfortunately, <laughs> Suzanne. Uh, one of the, the ways that I structure the book is to share these nature explorations with urban guides for one chapter, and then I dip back into my childhood and some of my favourite memories with my sister and when my other sister growing up. And one of the things uh, when we were growing up in Tasmania that was huge in the 1970s was Highland dancing <laughs> for some reason. And when I look back and was writing the stories about it, I, no one ever said to us that this was an unusual thing for three little dark-skinned South African Indian girls to do, to dress up in kilts in the 1970s in Tasmania. And not only that, my two younger sisters were medal winners. They were often on the podium getting all these medals pinned to their pinafore. I was a bit elephant sort of footed and, and I didn't do so well. But um, it, it, it was just so beautiful because... Again, you know, sisters are so, so we were only a year between us, so we often shared, you know, the same uh, events, the same stories, the, the same excursions. And this particular story I share in the book is when the, you get marked on the preciseness of your uniforms as well as the elegance and, and precision of your dancing. And because I had bombed out in this particular round of the competition, it was my job to make sure all the costumes were perfect. And I had stuffed up, forgot to get this perf this uh, little bonnet for the little ducks that my sister Monica was doing. And so I picked up something from the lounge that I thought we'd get away with and no one would notice the judges. But um, and I sort of, when she was on the competition stage, I raced down, I pinned it to her hair, and immediately there were giggles from the judges and everyone in the audience. So she kept dancing and doing her kicks and Highland things and everything. And when it finished... She pulled off the hat that I put on her head, realising it probably wasn't the authentic bonnet that is required for the competition, and realised that it was a little doily, a lace doily that I pulled off the back headdress, back couch, <laughs> and uh, that was what my poor sister was dancing um, with. But and she was marked down, unfortunately. So instead of getting a gold medal, she got a silver medal, and it was me too that was to blame. I think we have someone coming down. Um, hi to both of you and thank you for the talk. I'm interested, Delia and Indira, how do you know when you're nearing the end of your books and um, coming to an end? And is that something that just feels right or do you feel every book's different um, or is it just, just seems the time to stop? Delia. Oh, look, they never, you know, it, it's the weirdest thing because in one sense they never sort of feel finished and you can always sort of every time you pick them up you could sort of tinker with them. At the same time you hit a kind of almost like a childbirth sort of transition phase with them where you, you just, you're done um, and they are they are done and you were just, you were just ready and it's, a, it's almost a physical sort of process just thinking, you know, I've done everything I can with this book. Um, I, I, you know, can't stand being around it but I love it at the, you know, at the same time so it's a very um, it's a very intuitive 
thing, but I really, it was quite difficult with, with this particular book, which is a collection of essays for me, to, um, I mean, I could, I could have kept going forever with them. And then it was a hard, it was hard work to work out how to, how to order them together um, in such a way that, again, they were, um, that, that ordering a collection is an entirely different thing, where they spoke to each other and, um, uh, and, and sort of where to finish, where, what note do you finish on in a, you know, in a book about these these sort of profound issues, it's always hard to choose that. But I think once you work out where your last, like any piece of writing, when you work out what your last line is or what your sort of that ongoing resonance is going to be at the very end, that's usually when you kind of are very close to finishing um, and all the other decisions flow on from the, the last moment in the book. Indira. Well, this book for me was a particularly difficult book because it was so personal, so emotional. It, it was uh, such a terrible tragedy to try to make sense of. And when I set off writing the book, I did what a lot of people do, particularly with a sudden death, with, with a suicide in their family, is I wanted to know why, why this happened. And I was hoping that by writing, uh, going through this, these nature adventures, that the why would be answered. And fortunately for me, as I was going through the process of immersing myself in nature, finding bits of joy, learning from what nature was teaching me, I realised why was the wrong question. And I realised that what I needed to find was the meaning in what had happened. And as soon as I understood that, I realised that was what I should be searching for, not the why, what the, mean, what, what the meaning was. And I was lucky that it only really took me about a year to get to that point of finding some meaning in, in this event. I felt that would be where my book could come to an end because I don't think that there is anything else that I needed to find for myself in, in the reason I wrote this book other than to find some meaning in why this happened and, and what I was meant to learn from it. So when I reached that point, I, I realised, yeah, I was at the end. And I have to admit, the book was so painful in parts to try to get out of me that I was quite relieved, actually, <laughs> when it was over, when I reached that point. Thank you. We've come to the end of our session on, on this special Sunday. I'd like to thank my guests, Delia Faulkner, Indira Naidu. Thank you for your audience. Thank you to Ben and Alan, who have been doing all the audio for us. Thank you. Celia will be signing her book in the book signing area, which is in Bay 23. And Indira has a stack of books in the bookshop and she will be back in Australia. So um, stay tuned for more events. Well, thank you, Suzanne, for stepping in at the last moment. Um, Suzanne yes. has stepped in with three days' notice, really, to, um, to so beautifully um, chair this session. Oh, so thank wonderful. You. Thank you very much for that. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.